Sometimes you might feel trapped between the right and the left. No one listens when you say taxation is theft. But there's a place where people know harsh government brings tears. So grab some blue and Latrina Chrome. Let's make the timeline weird. Friends against Foucault's the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I've read Derrida to, (laughs) at least I try, I've tried to. You've um, tried to read of grammatology? Me too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God, that book is not a well-written book. That's a crazy book to read. And so what I've done is, you know, I've read the book and then I've read lots of interpretations of the book and I sort of just blend the two into my own understanding of what I think is going on there. And I like it, yeah. But again, if I if Jacques were alive today, he might look at me and say I'm an idiot. I know he said that he was almost always misunderstood by everybody, you know. So I don't know. But they Foucault's tend to do that though. Yeah, but Foucault's my dude. Like I, I'm down totally, and I totally, I would totally uh, take the label Foucaultian with no problem. Yeah. What struck Foucault for you? What was the thing where you read Foucault and you were like, "That's it. Huh. This whole, I get it now." You know, it's funny. The first time I read him was in grad school, Columbia in the history department and the history department, well, us history in general is essentially not only non-theoretical, it's not, it's anti-intellectual because they, they don't, they think the theory is sort of a waste of time and too abstract and they're not interested. It's terrible. I mean, but there are certainly a handful of us historians over the last 30 or 40 years who have done sophisticated, interesting theoretical stuff. And, and almost to a person, they go through Foucault. So Foucault, I remember Eric Foner telling me, or telling the class I was in when I was in grad school that when he started grad school in the 60s, everybody cited Tocqueville in their work. Yeah. Like that was like standard, like it was almost required. And he said that now this was in the this was in the 90s. He said that now everybody cites Foucault in their work. So he's a he's a huge influence on historians, but only among the cool ones. But he's, he's in big. everything, Foucault. I had a, yeah. I bought a book, uh, Foucault yeah. in Architecture. It's a whole architectural mm-hmm. guide about mm-hmm. how to build in a Foucaultian fashion. Right. Yeah, he's got it. He is. Uh, <clears throat> I think people will look back at him like everybody has a little bit of Foucault in them. Maybe he will go down one day as being lauded as this axis point of change. I, 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 I hope so. So I hope so. Um, I, the other thing, the other Pomo piece that I have paid a lot of attention to and that I very much like is original the original queer theory so i don't know if you know michael warner do you know michael warner um no i do not so you know everybody with an anti-statist sort of i don't know what whatever you want to call it libertarianish um uh, bent should read uh, fear of a queer planet by michael warner and all you got to do is read the introduction it's not easy but i when you read that and then little pieces of gender trouble by judith butler also a lot of it, again, is bas- basically unreadable, but the parts that are, are readable, um, and Michael Warner's better than her. He's gotten two books. Uh, one is really? okay. Fear of Planet, where he wrote the introduction. The other one is called The Trouble with Normal, which is a very good, very readable extended critique of gay politics, gay marriage, but really about mm-hmm. sort of the desire to belong and the making of victimology and the statism involved and, you know. Um, the other, the other sort of postmodernist thinker or book, I should say, that's been influential for me that I like, although again, it's like, I like pieces of it and then other pieces are mm-hmm. useless to me is Wendy Brown, States of Injury. That's, uh, Judith Butler's okay. partner. Huh. Yeah. Strongly recommend mm-hmm. that. She gets it like on a basic level, but then both she and Butler and their partners, they, they both went in like really horrible sort of so, so social justice and conservative directions, like they're really interested in maintaining the integrity of the academy and stuff like that. They're really, oh boy, they're really okay. concerned about like academic rules and institutions and traditions that are academic. And gosh, yeah, that's right. So unappealing. That, I was yeah. going to say that left that left postmodern uh, uh, trend is very optimistic to say one mm. thing. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. very, very optimistic about those things. I, I mean, I don't know if it works or not, but someone like uh, Rene Girard or uh, uh, Nick Land, ever get don't, into them? Nope. Mm-mm. I know about them, but not. I haven't read them. I, this is all. This is uh, a, a, a very familiar to me, and also very new to me. A lot of this stuff, and hmm. I've made it a almost a vendetta against the community that listens to my podcast uh, <laughs> to force teach them. Uh, all of the stuff that I've had to teach myself over time. But you haven't um, done Foucault yet? To me... You haven't done Foucault no, yet? No, I have done a little bit of Foucault. Uh, two oh. episodes on Foucault, I think. At okay. this point, we've done on... So, uh, Pete Quinones, hmm. I've been using his platform, because it's a larger platform than mine, uh-huh. to basically, I read a book from a thinker who I believe is valuable and contemporary, mm-hmm. and I will go and I will present their theory in relation to the in my little venture into state theory. And so I've been trying to, while educating myself on that, educate other people through podcast form. So I've done, the first one we did was, and I really recommend you should read this, Postscript on the Societies of Control. That's hmm. Deleuze. That, okay. is a, that is a theoretical framework and an advancement on Foucault's society of discipline that he outlines in Discipline and Punish. It is an hmm. advancement in the sense that within that theoretical argument, Foucault's theoretical argument, uh, enclosure is a very important concept in space mm-hmm. and time. And and so what Deleuze says is, well, in our modern times, it seems like those are in operation, but also there's this larger networked system that goes between enclosures and actually pushes people into different enclosures subconsciously uh, rather than in the enclosure where you know you're being watched uh, and so you monitor your own behavior Deleuze posits this new society that we're moving into where you don't really have a conscious say of whether or not you are uh, being pushed in a given direction or monitoring your own behavior you will simply be filtered into the appropriate category and you can see this with things like social media hmm. i mean how many people have been muted and blocked and how mm-hmm. people every single person's timeline is curated by an ai which of course could have very easily be intercepted at any time so that's mm-hmm. huge for me and i think that so deleuze where i'm at right now i think deleuze is the most important thinker in the western hmm. tradition huh so tell me what the problem that what's the problem that you were looking to solve or answer and that Deleuze did that for you? What was it? What was the problem you were trying to figure out? It seems to me that every new crisis that shows up is a new distraction that pushes us back down out of our activism and into some new kind of uh, preoccupation. And that in and of itself is such a threat to any sort of political activism that's serious that I, I've just abandoned it. I've been too frustrated with it. So I wanted to find out, first of all, what I was up against mm-hmm. in order to then figure out ways to subvert it. And Deleuze, Foucault first, and then Deleuze have given me this concept of what the thing does. I don't, still don't really know what it is. They okay. call it society, I guess. Uh, Okay. The thing that it does is, I guess, in Foucault's society, filter you in given directions, only give you certain choices. How do you break out of that so that you can think more freely and so mm-hmm. that you can act more freely outside of the system? Right. Okay. So you're interested in how power operates. Yes. Okay. So what I've done is written a book that you could certainly say is anti-politics and also points a way points at a way to change the world in ways that you probably would want without engaging in politics at all and so that's a renegade history of the united states and the thesis of that book the major thesis in that book is that people through american history and i'm sure this is true elsewhere too but i just focused on the united states people who operate on the margins of society, mostly on the margins of cultural norms, meaning they violate the cultural norms and laws as well, uh, have lived by living and by expressing their interests and by simply operating as prostitutes, as drug dealers, as rum runners, as gays when it was illegal, all those things, uh, they created these spaces of freedom these modes of being that are liberated that we all now take for granted that now they they changed society all of american society so that now 
the way that prostitutes in the 19th century in the United States dressed is the way that all American women dress now. It's completely standard. They invented the flapper haircut, which became like so popular that the first ladies wore them in the 1930s. But everything from walking alone without a male chaperone for women, that's what prostitutes pioneered that. Women owning high, earning high wages, owning property, owning real estate, having legal power because they served as their own lawyers, having political power because they were so wealthy in many cities that the mayor had to go through them to get elected. But they didn't care. There's no evidence in my book that they ever had any political in quotes, thought. They never marched in the streets. They never demonstrated. There's no picket signs. There's no editorials or speeches given by any of them. These are people just doing what they're not supposed to do, right? So agorism, this is where agorism comes in, right? Living living in a counter economy, living outside the formal sure. normal economy. That's really what they're doing. And by doing, that's why I've, I've really become more and more attracted to the label of agorist, that I certainly would. Yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want a freer society without engaging in politics, that's the only way to go. That's it. You know, you you establish your Sounds own. Like you you know, and cryptocurrency is the great facilitator of this. So we are living in the in a moment when this is possible on a global scale, right? My prostitutes in the 19th century they changed the politics of San Francisco and Denver and New York City and eventually the country as a whole, but. It was sort of it's a it was a gradual cultural shift, right? Same with the mafia, right? Simply by 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 selling liquor when it was illegal, right? They made not just not just liquor legal again because the state had to give in finally, but they they called into question state authority. And so in the 1920s during prohibition, basically everybody was an agorist or almost everybody in the country was an agorist because there was so much drinking going on and not only that but like the mafia, you know, not just the mafia, but all the bootleggers, they would they owned also speakeasies. And this was not just in the cities, this was in every town in the country, basically. There was an illegal bar or several bars or clubs that operated where you had women going who were never allowed in regular bars before then, and you had normal people going because they all wanted a drink. And so overnight, you had this society of outlaws, agorists, doing things they weren't supposed to do. Now that was a, and if you look at Hollywood movies, by the way, during the 1920s and 30s, the, the gangster genre, everybody should go watch the great gangster movies of the 20s and 30s, early 30s, actually. And so these movies were the only, only time in which gangsters were portrayed by Hollywood sympathetically and from the point of view of the gangster. And so what you have is in all the big, and these are, uh, the, uh, these are, these were the biggest movies of the time. Uh, a lot of them starring Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, like uh, Public Enemy was one. Um, mm. I'm blanking on the names. Little uh, Caesar was it Little Caesar? Uh, Public Enemy is one of the most famous one. White Heat, I think. But if you look at James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, the gangster genre of the early '30s, they are told from the point of view of the gangster. the The narrative tends to be the rise and fall of this self made man, who's br- and also and then the most important thing is the cops in these movies are portrayed with scorn and derision. Remember, this is during Prohibition when everybody hated cops. Cops and the state were at their low ebb in terms of national prestige during Prohibition because everybody or many people saw the law as utterly ridiculous and flouted it on a regular basis. And that's and so that was all aided and abetted by not just gangsters who were selling the stuff and bringing the liquor in across the border from Canada and, and elsewhere. It was also aided and abetted by Jewish and Italian immigrants who were not assimilated yet. And so they were opening jazz clubs and nightclubs, that sold booze that invited women in. And then you had these white women in these clubs dancing with and eventually going home with these brown skinned men, not, you know, immigrants or black men or whoever. And again, this is in the 20s and 30s of so living against fundamental American puritanical norms. And by doing that, they radically and permanently changed this society so that 19th century Victorianism was dead and buried by the end of the 1920s because of those people. And Foucault has these moments in Discipline and Punish where he talks about, and he does, I wish he had elaborated on this, but I take it, he he's talks about people living in the shade People who live under monarchies or under slaveholding regimes who have no zero zero legal power zero um, and are limited physically right in their 
ability to move, et cetera. But they, because they have no interest in integrating or um, internalizing the power and the norms, they live just differently, like American slaves, right? They had a completely different culture than the rest of the country. Highly distinctive, totally different culture in which, for instance, like sex was not considered to be as evil and dangerous and wicked as the rest of society thought of it as. That women were not considered to be permanently degraded if they had sex with more than one man. They thought that work was a means to an end instead of an end in itself, which is the great Puritan idea, the Puritan work ethic. So, And because of that, black people in this country, descendants of slaves, and slaves themselves at the time have always served as this example, this counterexample of freedom for for whites and for even middle class black people and others who come into this country. And have you noticed how many white people have basically acted like black over the last 150, 160 years, right? They're expressing a desire on some level to to enjoy those freedoms by those people who lived in the shade, meaning they lived outside of the of the gaze, to use a good uh, postmodern word, the gate, the gaze of the gaze of power, either the gaze of the slave owner or the gaze of the state, because the king, right, the king, and the slaveholder had limited means of surveillance, right? It was only you know individuals one to one looking at you, and if they weren't looking at you, if they didn't have their cops or their overseers or their you, you're free when the slave owner turns his back on you. Right when you're in the fields right. hoeing hoeing away in the fields and the and the overseer is staring at you, you got to work or else he'll whip you. But as soon as he turns his back, what did the slaves do? And Frederick Douglass talked about this. Frederick Law Olmsted talked about this when he toured the South. They stopped working. <laughs> they, of course, because they're sensible human beings, as I would too. Right, and the slaveholders and and this is true under feudalism, right? the serfs and the peasants under the feudal lords did the same thing. They worked like shit. You know, it was very unproductive. This is why, this is why the abolitionists wanted to go to war with the South because they wanted to make all the people there more productive. Cause they understood that wage labor under capitalism is far more productive. You know, when you have to work to survive, you got, you're going to work harder and be more orderly. And it's why modernists and, and pro-capitalists in the modern era pushed for Europe to be handed over to the bourgeoisie, to the rising capitalist class. Again, to create greater state power, greater institutions of power, because they would have more money, more capital to operate with. And that's exactly what they got. So the kings and the slaveholders of the pre-modern era, you know, just were, it was very difficult for them to, to maintain control over their people. People right. think, people think it's just the opposite. It's stupid. It's, it's, it's totally wrong, right? It's just the opposite of this. They had very limited means, right? They didn't have the NSA. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have any kind of, and they didn't even have police forces for God's sake, right? Sure. I mean, they might have some knights who would, you know, come through town and put on a big show with like heads on pikes or whatever. And that's true. Some people did get, you know, beheaded or thrown into dungeons, but you can only throw a certain number of people in dungeons and still have a functioning society. So they knew they couldn't do this willy nilly. Same with slave owners. They whip their slaves for sure, but way less than we think because same thing with an animal, right? If you whip a horse repeatedly, how well will the horse behave for you? How much will the horse work for you? And that's what they found out. George Washington himself wrote a manual for slave owners in which he said, you know, spare the rod because the more you beat these people, the less well they will work for you. And W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black social scientist of the 20th century, wrote about this as well. And he said they could make us work, but they could never make us work well. Right. So, again, it's the it's living in the shade. It's living outside the norms. It's living in these distinctive cultures outside the gaze or the purview or the power of of the state and that's what we can do right now we can do that and we are doing everyone's doing that right now especially under covid under the covid regimes right black markets are flourishing you know and agorism is flourishing cryptocurrency is flourishing people are crossing state lines to do business without leaving their couch they're they're crossing national boundaries to do business without leaving their couch and the state, if they're using cryptocurrency, doesn't even know it happens. And they're buying drugs. They're buying drugs. They're buying sex. They're buying all sorts of things they're not supposed to buy with this with this new means of currency. So it's already happening, my friend. It's here. It exists. Almost everyone in the society is an agorist, at least for a moment. And what you need to do if you want to live... 
Yeah, but what you need to do is tell them what they're doing and say, isn't that better than following the law, following the rules and behaving properly? Don't you like it oh, when you I do agree. that? I completely agree with that. Yeah, so that's it. So there you go. There's your politics. So here's my, that is great. That's <laughs> great. Here's, and this is, I guess, where I have moved into with it. This is, you should definitely, definitely read the postscript on societies of control, by the way, because I think, I think okay. you're right in a lot of ways. But so some, one thing that I would point out is while you're correct, w- w- people aren't going into bars. Yeah. People aren't going into restaurants. Right. And people are afraid to see their grandparents. Right. And so they're, so my thing has been go beyond the loser society of control. I think there's a society of fear. And I think that <laughs> I'll get, I get roasted if I use the term the state, right? Uh-huh. But <laughs> I think that the state, in as vague a way as you could describe that, has tapped into the primal fear with this networked media thing that we have that's constantly yelling at us and telling us that the world is falling apart every two seconds and a lot of people believe it and a lot of people aren't mentally equipped to 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 bunk that in their own minds and so you're absolutely correct that all like people are circumventing that's right but it's because they're afraid and they haven't figured out how to circumvent everything yet and mm-hmm. so their lives are still being pushed in a given Direction, like how do you see grandma when you're afraid to see grandma because she might die? Hmm. You have to stop believing that she might die, right? Yeah, which is going to happen. It's not that easy, though. But it is easy. <laughs> Look, we've only been in this for, what is it, uh, how many months now? Six, seven months, eight months? Um, well, my you- concern is that they do this in more different ways, that they find, sure. oh my God, there really is a sociological reaction sure. to cranking the fear up. So, I mean, they just got... Joe Biden elected. Well, we'll see. You know, you know, your problem is you're paying too much attention to politics. Mm. I'm talking about how people live every day, day to day, right? And mm. thank God, most Americans. Well, this is a, this is a two edged sword, right? Most Americans are mm. political ignoramuses. They know very, very little about what goes on in pol- in formal politics, the stuff we've been talking about. But you know, um, how many of them bought? weed before it was legal and is that a reason that weed is now legal is that a reason that weed is now legal it is the reason that weed is now legal okay sure like just that alone just that little thing which is not a little thing just that thing alone the legalization of marijuana how did that come about it came about in exactly the way i was talking about it was by millions and millions of otherwise upstanding good american citizens i'm sure many of whom have families and good jobs and they vote and they follow the law and they say yes sir when the cop pulls them over and all that but they were still breaking the law because they like to get high. And it became so widespread and so common, and everybody had a son or a grandson or an uncle or somebody who was a pothead, that eventually the state just said, all right, you know what, Let's, we, we can't stop this and maybe we can actually make some money out of making it legal. But most importantly, they couldn't right. stop it, so they just had to give in, just like alcohol as of 1934. That was the very first thing that Franklin Roosevelt did. He ended prohibition. That was the very first executive order of his. I think it was the day he entered office. He ended prohibition in 1934. That's because, and he said this, and all the anti-prohibitionists said this at the time, it's because no one was following the law. And most importantly, it was creating a nation of criminals, a nation of anti-authority people, not just authoritarian. They were, they were opposed to authority figures. The polls were taken in the 1920s and early 30s of Americans as to who they admired the most, who was the most famous, blah, blah, blah. And it was like gangsters always ranked ahead of politicians. So there you go. I mean, and and yes, you look at Twitter, you look at what's going on in electoral politics. Oh, it's it's the opposite of freedom. It's this is definitely taking a totalitarian turn in American politics like I've never seen before the last right. five or so years. I mean, and if Biden and Harris are in there and the good old Democrats come in, I mean, they clearly want to limit speech. I mean, thank God there will be a Republican Congress, so they won't be able to do much. But if they had their way. You know, I don't think the First Amendment would survive four to eight years of them. They, they're very clear about wanting to limit speech and censoring, you know, all all the ways in which we communicate on a mass scale, except for what we, you and I do with podcasting. But they'll, they'll, they'll try to get to that, too, eventually. Um, so, yeah, it's, that's a shit show. I mean, it's worse than a shit show. It's uh, becoming a concentration camp. But look underneath 
Okay. Look underneath at how people are actually living, right? Most Americans don't, <laughs> they don't abide by that stuff. That's, that's the political class and they're sort of dumb lackeys, you know, who, who follow it and cheer along like it's team sports, but that's not most Americans. Thank God. It's probably 10 to 20% of Americans are like politically interested in that way. Very few people even know who the vice president is, right? They don't even know what Syria is. I mean, I kind of wish they did, but that's also good in that they just don't pay attention to this stuff and what they do pay attention to. And listen to this, this is the key thing. What they do pay attention to is pleasure and their own individual freedom. Americans love pleasure. Right. They love watching TV. They love drinking beer. They love having sex. They love watching porn. They love going to Disneyland. They love all those things, right? They love vacations, blah, blah, blah. You may not like their taste in certain things, but that's all stuff that the state does not like because that's all individualistic. It's all narcissistic in a sense, and it is not serving the state interest. It's not serving a collective interest. It's only serving your interest in 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 your That's desire. where I guess I I'm curious to discuss. Are we sure? Okay. Are we yeah. sure it's not serving a state interest? How so? How would it? Uh so by people that's people going be, Okay, please. Yeah, how is porn serving the that's state interest? Yeah, every American watch we not know porn this. porn per se. The problem is that I I I would be curious to see if despite that platform the most influential contributors to the platform, how subversive they are to someone uh, who pays taxes or goes out and, and votes or can, tells their friends to go out and pay taxes or votes. I guess that's what I would be more curious about. Well, we have to pay our taxes or else we get thrown in jail so or whatever. I mean, some of us can get away with it. But, you know, that's, again, that's not really, that's not the pro the problem is not that there are so many people willing to pay taxes. The problem is that we get taxed. Oh, oh, actually, let's do taxation. So you tell me, how many Americans do you think cheat on their taxes? About everyone. Almost everyone, Everybody. I would guess. We don't know, but I would guess damn yeah. near everyone. Okay? Even the most, like, hardcore, you know, salute Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as great American patriot liberals, you know, even those people, I know, because I know a lot of them, they cheat on their taxes every chance they get. They're utter hypocrites, of course, sure. but but it's actually wonderful and they should be celebrated for it. And every time you hear about a liberal cheating on his, his or her taxes, you just say, good for you. That's great. The state sucks, doesn't it? Don't you hate the government? Everything it does is bad. Why, why are you so, uh, why do you think that one wing of the government is your fucking family? That is weird, right? That everybody votes for their daddy and, and, their, Mom, and their mommy and daddy in Congress. Did you see, so did you odd, see, right? did you see the Randy Rainbow video about this in which he says straight up, he's singing a song. It's a, got like a million views on YouTube. It's horrific, but he taught, he says straight up, uh, mommy and daddy he calls Joe and, and Kamala mommy and daddy. It's amazing, right. but it, it's clear that's what it's about. My parents, my parents are diehard like left liberals. They they watch MSNBC and they cheer like they're watching a sports event, and they call all the Democrats by their first names, <laughs> by their first names, right? Yes, it's okay. it's Nancy, it's <laughs> right. Nancy and Kamala and Joe and Barack and Michelle and, and see. Chuck. I think there would be power to that if you if you <laughs> inserted irony into it. So my parents, when they do this, and they've always done this. While they're watching MSNBC, they're drinking martinis and getting drunk off their ass. Okay. They're yelling uh -huh. at the TV like it's a damn NFL game, like it's the Super Bowl. Okay. That's <clears throat> okay. And, and I know for a fact that they, they cheat on their taxes because they've been audited several times. They love the Democrat. They think huh. the Democratic Party is their family. Okay. They love these people. They love Bill Clinton and Hillary. They love them. Okay. Amazing. But they break all the liberal laws. Getting drunk. Okay, this is why the state tried to prohibit. I keep coming back to this. Tried to prohibit this. This is why the state prohibits drugs, because guess what happens? Guess yeah, what happens yeah, yes. when you're a drunk or high? You can't do any function that the state wants. Mm -hmm. You can't. You and also you're much more likely to break laws, violate laws, disobey cops. What kind of a soldier are you going to be in the army if you're drunk or high all the time? They do not like this. See, I'm I'm so with you. <laughs> On mind-altering mm -hmm. drugs and and still skeptical of pornographic media. But wait, same thing with sex. Sex is always a problem for the state. This is why they never talk about it. You ever notice this? No politician has ever mentioned, except for Trump slightly, and only when he was caught off camera, has, even, has ever slightly mentioned sex. 
Do you have any idea what the sex life of the Obamas or the Bushes or the Clintons like? No, we have no clue. They never mention it. They're like the most <laughs> Clint, Clinton maybe only only yeah, because he got caught. <laughs> only yeah. because his humanity got yeah, caught. Right, sure. he was hiding his humanity. Right. But right. they are not allowed to. So sure. what I'm saying is all these things that are about pleasure, sensual pleasure in particular, are always anti-statist. I agree with Let you. Let me say that again. Let me say that again. Sensual pleasure is inherently anti-statist. Boom. That's what you must Completely embrace. Agree. That's what you got to champion and embrace. And anytime there is a celebrity or anybody who is criticized for being hedonistic or narcissistic because they're showing their body or whatever or have a sex tape or whatever it is be on their side when when cardi b and megan the stallion had that wet ass pussy video and everybody was talking about it and everybody was horrified and all the liberals i said excuse uh-huh. me like that's how is that a bad thing, right? If you're interested in free, especially women's freedom and pleasure, right? But all of our freedom and pleasure. The state doesn't like that because when you're thinking about having sex with Megan the Stallion, <laughs> you're not thinking about serving the country, are you? <laughs> well, she she would be having sex with you, for, for, <laughs> first of all. But yes, yeah, I agree. So, see now I'm now I'm okay. with you there that. What, who is it? The, the, the Marxist autonomists talk a, mm. a lot about the creating of situations. Yeah. I think a song like that, man. So I was in Williamsburg the other day and Williamsburg, parts of Williamsburg. I don't know if it's still like I say the other day. This might have been uh-huh. a month ago. Um, Jesus, that's how long, that's how fast time goes it's by in blurred. this quarantine. Yeah. Uh, the there that song was playing somebody was driving down the street windows mm-hmm. open there were like three or four people bumping mm-hmm. in the song everybody on the street was like either laughing or horrified mm-hmm. at the song that was being played there is such power in that singular yep. moment and so i agree with you so go go to the pornhub website and look at all the categories i'll do it right now okay i mean it's everything right. under the sun pages and pages and pages and pages of different categories okay and they range from everything to everything you know, if you've ever, if, everybody knows this because everybody goes on Pornhub. So it is, it is, <sighs> you are right, Daddy. It Russell. is skinny women. It is fat women. It is really fat women. It is really skinny women. It is right. short women, tall women. It is gay, straight, bisexual. It is w- the number one search category by straight women is lesbian porn. Do I need to go on? Like it is every ethnicity. You have black men fucking women right and left, you violating right. the oldest taboo in American society. You have, all the races and ethnicities and colors you have bondage all these things are going on that are not okay <laughs> ah he shows his hand a little bit how's that <laughs> which one which hand did i show <laughs> they're not okay no you don't you're not a fan of uh putting the leather on? oh nothing like that no gimping out oh yeah no I've, I've got i've got some kink in me hot wax i've got some kink in me um in fact and by the way by the way so uh i moved back to this bay area a year and a half ago I live. I grew up here, and I moved back for the first time two years ago, a year and a half ago, and was dating, and found out that a whole lot of women and people, I guess, but the women I was dating were like somehow involved in the kink scene because it's really big here. The kink scene is kind of centered in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Holy crap!" Yes, it's it like is. that's where the fortress that's right. is. Yeah, <laughs> on uh, it's on Mission Street, or my parents used to live right near there. Um, but so and and they were secret about secretive about it and because you know they were real estate agents and i was like oh my god you're the last you're the last oppressed minority in this way you're the last you know the gays are now all assimilated everything's fine it's completely normal to be homosexual now but to be kinky is actually you can lose your job you can lose your standing in society your parents your children would be horrified but if you but if you're gay if you're a gay parent you're like people will love you they'll give you a parade right how did they do it? They desexualized themselves. This was the explicit argument made by Andrew Sullivan and Larry Kramer, who were the leaders of the gay marriage movement. Andrew Sullivan wrote a very famous article at the beginning of the gay marriage movement called The End of Gay Culture, in which he straight up says, and Larry Kramer said this in speeches, we must stop fucking in the bushes and we must close down the bathhouses. And when we do that, and when we start shopping at Ikea and start acting like the straights, we will get our civil rights and marriage and all the rest of it. And guess what happened? Precisely that. So now, gay. Now, are you saying are you saying that's a good thing? Or no, I think it's a terrible thing. I was, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, I was, I was absolutely opposed to gay they marriage. They completely the, had to change who they were to buy. Yeah, it. 
But I mean, it's really, it's really, it's really the state. It's really civil rights is what they're after, right? They wanted, which is good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand that. Like, I'm, I'm opposed to the institution of marriage, but I'm not, I'm not going to stop people from getting it. Um, and the state confers, what was it, fifteen hundred rights and privileges to married couples that gays didn't get. I mean, that's just fucked up. And I would, if I were gay at the time, I would have been angry about that too. Yeah. I would like for there to be different ways to go about getting that freedom. But I understood the strategy. But that's. Yeah. But they had to desexual mm-hmm, but they had to mm-hmm, desexualize themselves. So if you look at if you look at the advocate uh in the eighties and nineties before gay marriage took off, it had like shirtless men in all the ads. There was it was a highly it was just like the the advocate was basically the main national news source for gays. Um still is, I think. And the ads were very erotic, and then once gay marriage happened, it got completely whitewashed, and they don't even mention sex anymore. And you can go to and go to any gay marriage. I mean, it's kind of a dead movement now because they succeeded. But like during the height of it, the human rights—I think it was called the human rights campaign—and Lambda and all the groups that were leading that charge, that movement that was successful, they did not mention. They would profile gays and lesbians on their sites, and they didn't mention sex once, ever, never. And we all know that gay culture, that's what mm-hmm. it, set it apart, right? Not just that they were homosexual, but that they were highly sexual and very open about it. And the great, beautiful thing about gay liberation is that they were unabashed and, and unapologetic about their deviant desires, right? And so they made deviancy normal. They made deviancy okay. And that's why very... Right, that element And that is why exist. kink and Pornhub are so huge among regular normies now. It's because of those, largely because of that that mm-hmm. generation of gay liberationists in the 70s and 80s, before marriage, before they started seeking civil rights. So again, it's living outside the norms that creates a whole culture of freedom for everybody. Yeah, I'm turning around. Good. I think you've convinced me. Good. I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, I got that. I create a platform, platform. And just, and forget it. And 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 meanwhile, and just forget about politics. Try to like wean yourself off of that because because you know right. that's what the people in my book. That's the people the people I've been talking about. They're not spending all their time like trying to like take control of one of the political parties and pass this or that law or legislation. Law is down. <laughs> law is, and yeah, also right, let me course. finish with this point. Law is downstream from culture. So once you, once you change the culture. The state has no hope. Like there, there's nothing you can if if they want to pass a law and oppress us in a particular way and re- restrict our freedoms in a particular way. But the entire culture, like with prohibition, and the entire culture is against them. Who's going to win? Mm-hmm. Who's going to win? The state has right. no chance when the culture changes, right? So, um, yeah, that's why gay marriage is right. here. That's why drugs and alcohol are legal. That's why all these things are happening because the culture shifts and then the law just has to follow. So just live against the norms, outside the norms for yourself, not not for the purpose of being a badass, but just what do you want, you know, and almost definitely there will be things you want that are illegal or illicit morally, right? Do them. Don't be ashamed of it and don't be ashamed of it and don't most importantly don't shame others. And eventually, you will turn people onto this thing, and there'll be more and more of you, and the state will have to abide by your dictates. I agree. I there agree. I'm Very done now. Nice. Oh, man. I Of course, I'm trying, I guess, just because I'm kind of invested in figuring out the best way to approach this and recommunicate it to people. is um, So now the thing that comes up for me, maybe you have a thought on, is how many of those people who do you think were blowing a load on Pornhub uh, went <laughs> attempted to go to bed the night before the election and couldn't get to sleep because they were absolutely terrified. Uh, terrified of what? Oh, of Trump winning? You mean or what? Yeah, you tell me. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's well, I don't, I don't. Well, know everyone. Because I was, I slept beautifully. I had a whole night out. I walked around. I had a, it was, it was beautiful. But everybody, it seemed, well, not everybody, a large amount of people who were probably using that platform that you say communicates this anti-state thing, which I uh-huh. agree with. What is the efficacy of doing that long term when that same person, after they're finished watching their particular video and uh, getting their orgiastic okay. experience, then attempts to go to bed and is uh, absolutely okay. horrified. So, so- um, here's the other great thing about Americans and their and their superficiality. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. you might remember then 2012, 2013, 2014. Remember when every woman on campus was getting raped? Remember that? And there was a nationwide hysteria. You know, mm-hmm. one in three, one in four women are raped on campus, right. and this was an absolute emergency. 
This was an emergency. If you were on a college campus at the time, you know this. There were demonstrations, there were demands to fire people, to call the cops on people, to put men in prison, and there were rapists among us, and oh my God, this is just, it's a rape factory, every one of them, okay? And then 2014, Ferguson happens, and they completely forgot. And since then, apparently there hasn't been any rape on campuses because no one's mentioned it since 2014, 2015. Have you noticed that? Then they became obsessed with race. And so, so on college, and this all started on college campuses. So 14, 15, 16, the Ku Klux Klan, don't you know, was on college campuses. And oh my God, this is an absolute emergency. These are racist institutions and black bodies are being destroyed and threatened all the time at Oberlin and Yale and Occidental and Harvard and Columbia. It was, not, it was a total hysteria. And everybody was obsessed with that and sure of it. And then Trump was elected in 16. And then all of a sudden it was about Trump being a fascist and a Nazi and a racist. Uh, but then immediately after that, that switched to him being uh, run by Russia. And for three years, the hysteria was about Russia, 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 Russia. And then that went away. And then it became COVID, another hysteria. And they forgot about Russia. Did you notice that? Completely about Russia. And then George Floyd happens and it's back to the, the race hysteria. And I promise you, they'll have... They'll yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, the subject keeps changing. They're but the, superficial. But the preoccupation with being absolutely ridiculous keeps... It yeah, but they're around. not. It's all super. That's but it's kind of the it's, thing that has to be burning energy. But it's superficial attachment to these things, which is fantastic. We don't want like lifelong abiding connections to politics the way that like activists have, right? You know these activists people. I've known many of them in my life. That's what they do. They have a passion <laughs> for particular politics, and they will not let it go. No matter how much porn they watch, no matter how many hysterias are around them, Man, they stick them. to it. And this is left wing, right wing. It doesn't matter, yeah. right? If it's abortion mm -hmm. or you want Medicare for all, whatever it is, or socialism, you doggedly hold on to that. That's a very small group of people. Thank God in our society, there are very, very few Americans who are built that way. Fortunately, most of them, for most of them, it's superficial politics because we are a rich nation. This is a, this, these are the, this is the politics of rich people, superficial politics. When you don't actually have skin in the game, when you're not likely to get drafted and sent to a war in another country, when you're not likely to be sent right. to prison, when your relationships with cops, and by the way, this goes for most black people too. Generally speaking, you know, cops suck, but you're probably not going to get beaten down or shot in the street. This is very unlikely. You know, most of us in this country live better than almost everyone else. And even the poorest among us live better than the poor in the rest of the world. Right. So we have the luxury to be superficial about our politics and to be obsessed with things like Donald Trump's hair and what he said on Twitter and how nice Joe Biden is and how Kamala is a badass instead of their policies or anything serious. That's all good actually in the long term because they these people don't care about anything about except how they live individually. Their individual needs and I desires. Hope so. Yeah, they're not collectivists. I certainly This hope is not so. collectivism. I mean, I would say that the mask wearing and that stuff is pretty collectivist and pretty scary, uh, yes. but it will go away. Right. Okay. And that's a, what it, well, well, of course it will, but again, I'm more concerned not about the expression of the mechanism, but about the mechanism. How the hell do we cut the mechanism entirely? The fact that the media can whip people up into any frenzy it wants to, and maybe someone could get killed, that will impact your life. How do you move away from that? How, how do you, do you just get out of the city? <sighs> Like how, well, how yeah. do you stop I mean, that? this is particularly difficult and believe me, it, it grinds at me every single day, but I know it's This might be the beginning of, of stuff though. Yeah. I just, it's gotta be transitory. You think that most Americans are going to be wearing masks when there is literally no COVID anymore? No, no. Let me, let me be very specific. I think that, um, people are learning from this, uh, and there are new mechanisms that are potentially being either created or put in place that we'll, we will be hearing from in the future, like a TSA, for instance, which bothers the shit out of us every time we mm. go to the airport. Mm -hmm. Things like that might be in play, which, right. and I agree with literally everything that you have said about how to distance yourself from these things, but there are always new mechanisms being put into place. So at least it's good for us to recognize them. And I don't see them in place yet, but I certainly think we are in the grounds for that kind of a thing. Okay. But I mean, again, so yeah, some people have been killed recently. Political violence, pretty bad. But most people who have been killed, right, or who have been involved in that violence sought, sought it out. Like if you, if you didn't want to get killed in the recent- I agree. 
You didn't have to. You could easily avoid it. It was very easy to, except for the handful of poor store owners, right? I don't think any of them got killed, but a lot of them got beat up. But, um, you know, except for the hand- a lot of property damage. There was some of that for sure. But other than those people who had no choice, who had property, that's what Kyle Rittenhouse was there for, to defend one of those store Mm -hmm. owners from that. But but unless you're one of those very few people who got attacked, you know, you could very easily avoid all that violence. That was chosen by lunatics on the left and lunatics on the right. As it should be done. Yeah, as it should, as you should. If mm-hmm. it's as simple as that, I get it. I guess it is... Um, fanatics. Man, they I don't know that. It, it is... Uh, yeah, it is just, I guess, interesting to me how people can be whipped up into fanaticism. Maybe they always were fanatics, but there's always an ignition when when something happens. Yeah, but how many, so, peop- how many people, at the height of it, at the height of it, how many people do you think were out in the streets doing violence on either side? Like what percentage of Americans? No, right? I agree. Teeny Jesus, tiny. You couldn't even calculate how small it was. Teeny yeah, tiny. You probably couldn't even calculate it's it. Insignificant. It's insignificant. The, what I'm saying is there's a magnifying glass on every single one of these events that does, it subverts the logic that you're giving. It, it, people stop real going, oh, well, how many people is it really? And that's, mm-hmm. I, I, there's, that's a problem. That seems to be the biggest problem is we could, you and I can go, yeah, it's not, there's not really that many people. Of course, there's always going to be crazy people in a society of 300 and something million people who half of them are on some sort of a prescription drug that's made to make them sick. (laughs) Uh, Of course, there are going to be crazy people. But I guess the thing that is so interesting to me is that they can all be whipped up into a particular frenzy for an event that is so superficial. And then, you know, two years from now, it'll be something else. But why if it's superficial? So- you know the lockdown. Believe me, no one ha- no one hates it more than I do. Believe me, uh, and it has it has done and it has done real damage. Okay, but it's transitory. It, it, there's no way. I mean, the, the state itself. It's not in the state's interest to continue the it's lockdown. It's done a lot of damage. Yeah, but the it's state itself cannot continue it because it's destroying the economy that the state needs to be powerful. No, I yeah I yeah the state the needs are continuing it. That's the other strange part. Well, yeah, but again, it's because there's, you know, a handful of cases still and they think it's super deadly or whatever. You know, it's just, it's ignorance. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, that's yes. All. Why are people not, pers- yes, right. Why do, how do we stop the ignorance? Because it's not just ignorance. It's a fear-coded ignorance. You can't penetrate this conversation with most people. You can't get past the opening lines. It's also virtue signaling very much, right? It's, you know, I care about people and you don't, yeah. right? It's that. I care about people. That's why I'm wearing a mask. And you don't when you're not wearing a mask. I've been told this to my face by strangers right. on the street. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. who I want to who I want to punch in the face. But, you know, the better, the smarter part of me says, you know, this will go away. And what is it, you know, in the big picture? I mean, we had a pandemic in 1918. People were forced to wear masks. Mm-hmm. There were rebellions against it, by the way. There was like an anti-masking movement in San Francisco, in fact. It was it was very much a similar thing. But is that the most important thing that happened in 1918, 1919? No, I'm pretty sure it was World War One. <laughs> you know? I mean, the people who died, that's can important. We, can, but the state's actions against it. Can we at least it, say that... Uh... Can we, mm-hmm. can we at least say that political anarchism, like our conversation is clearly going beyond a political anarchism, obviously, yeah. a, even anti-political it's with all the things we've been talking about. Cultural. Can we say political anarchism is dead? I would like for it to be. I want I want cultural anarchism. I want I want I don't know why I didn't start with I want I want my whole my whole mission, my political mission is to create a culture, a libertarian yeah. small L culture. I'm not I don't identify as a libertarian, but you know, just the word itself, sure, I, right? what it means in sort of its original pure yeah. form, just freedom. Like, you know, I want a culture that's sure. anarchistic and libertarian. What I want is elements of the old, of the new left of the 60s, like the Yippies and Abby Hoffman, the one, the hippies, right? I want the Greenwich mm-hmm. Village mm-hmm. sex radicals. I want Emma Goldman, who was one of those people. I want that back. I want a counterculture. Right. That sure. is, or the gay liberation movement of the seventies that I talked about, which was the Stonewall movement. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Are you kidding me? Drag queens no. fighting cops nope. in the street and winning, and like stopping cops from busting gay bars forever after that. It's never since then because drag queens and a bunch of fags beat up the cops in the street. How how much how yeah, good is that? Creating right? that. Yeah, we need to create as many of those situations as we can. Yeah. That I am in complete agreement with. Well, the thing is, I think it's happening on a mass scale. It's even bigger than Stonewall all the time with the internet, right? People, (laughs) because of the internet, people are doing 
all kinds of shit that is completely not okay according to the authorities all the time you have yeah all the time ho- housewives you yeah. have housewives in the suburbs doing kink videos that are on Pornhub you have people cheating on their husbands and wives right and left because it's so easy to do that now the dating apps are you crazy it's a whole sexual revolution because of these things people can get laid so much easier than they could ever before and they are getting laid way more than they ever were before and they can, and they're getting laid better like they can choose they can pick and choose who they get have sex with much more easily from a wide pool rather than just the people in their immediate vicinity so this is all very good it's just not reported in the new york times it's not talked about by the politicians you you won't hear from your professors about this except the super super cool ones it's all subterranean. It's all subterranean, but it is massive. And then you throw cryptocurrency in there and blockchain and all that, you know, and like the dissolution of national boundaries because of the internet and all these things. Come on, man. This is like a golden yes, age. This is, all, this is, a, this is, this is a golden yeah, age of no, freedom. I agree with you there. The, the, the performance, the play, you know, the shadows on the wall, Plato's cave, you know, the shadows on the wall is Biden versus Trump and Kamala and yada, 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 electropolitics. Yada, yeah, yada. Everybody is so of course. obsessed with it. But they're not. It's superficial. They will forget all about the election in <sighs> four months. All I want is to be able to talk to my friends on social media and go, how are you today? I'm great. I was <laughs> doing this. Oh, awesome. And But every single conversation that I have is, did you see that in Michigan there's 40,000 votes that Dominion had? Stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. Yeah, no, I hate it. I mean, well, this is this is a very, this is a unique moment. It's only because of Trump, though. It's only are you because sure? of Trump. Are you sure? I trust so, you. If you're during the Obama, tell me that that's true, I, I yeah. hope so. <laughs> Yes, because during the Obama years, people were obsessed with the politics during the election, as Americans dumbasses always are. But then they forgot all about it. Once Trump, once Obama took power, like ask, ask one of his supporters what his actual policies Mm. are. I won't tell you. They have no idea because he stopped paying attention. They paid attention to Michelle Obama's we dresses. We really go back to like being and they paid attention to, and like that being the thing everybody's they, constantly talking about. Finally, because that I guess that's it right there. Well, okay. Well, have you noticed that there hasn't been a draft since 1973? <laughs> I, I guess so. Why do you think that is? <laughs> Fair enough. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Because because the generals in the Pentagon and the and the Republican and Democratic parties were like, you know, we don't like the draft because it's slavery. No, it's because Americans were like, fuck yeah. this shit. And so it's a very yeah. it's a small mercenary army and drone operators who do all the oh. killing now. Which, you know, we hold on, we hate, but come on. Compared to the Vietnam War, compared to the Korean War, compared to <sighs> World War Two. Compared to World War One, compared to do I need to go no, on? You know the number of it's it's yeah. bad, but it's an it's a massive improvement because of mass refusal. I hate I hate hearing mass that you refusal are by Americans. I hate hearing to, this is completely a correct argument, good. but it still is. I'm I'm glad I'm if glad we were you're upset. Fair, I think I would give you some other opinions about how I think this kind of situation should be dealt with but like I I guess you I'm just are putting right. a positive optim I'm putting a positive optimistic gloss on it you can interpret it any way you want I mean believe me I could give you an hour uh, and I could convince you that this is the worst time in American history That's what I'll do. but I don't believe it actually <laughs> when you look at yeah. when you look at this is the great thing about being a historian where you can mm-hmm. see the long patterns and I'm telling you I'm telling you as bad as things might seem now, you don't want to trade them with any other era. You don't want to trade now with the 1950s or the 40s or the 30s or any other decade. Ah, you but know, perhaps this was when in the 30s, I wouldn't have been so disillusioned with the government because I wouldn't have had the internet to tell me about it. <laughs> no, nah, you would have been a member of the Communist Party, my friend, in the Hell 1930s yeah. because you would have well, been a rat. Uh, let's yeah. do more of that. See, that's the off-air conversation. We could probably also because be doing you a lot more of that. Because you would have been a radical, a free thinker, and that's what that's what happened to most of them. They went communist in the thirties. That was when it was that's what that was cool in the thirties. But yeah. So or maybe, you know, hopefully you were a Bohemian radical. In the twenties, Bohemian radicalism was very common, much more common and communism died in the twenties, by the way, because we got wealthy and jazz happened and the nightclubs happened and prohibition happened and all the sort of anti authority culture happened and it was it was the best decade, but you know, before then was a killing field, right? World War One, just the worst ever, and then right after that is another even bigger killing field, World War Two, and the Depression. Um, but 
you know, so other th- other than that moment in the 1920s, which even then, I mean, you wouldn't want to trade with the 1920s because still it was like 40 percent of the country was a peasant, basically farmers. And like, you know, you would you would die without the technology that we have now. But, you know, yeah, it's this there's been uh, the you know, about Whiggism, Whiggism, the Whiggish interpretation of history, that it's always moving upward. That's always mm-hmm. getting better. I mean, I yeah. do. I do have a tendency to to talk like that and to think like that, and I know that's not like I do. You, pristine I, 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 I intellectually. I know you're just doing your best here. I was going to say, I know you're just doing your best here to be optimistic about it. <laughs> I, I don't think you're going. No, to this is real. Like, oh, the, everything gets better because we have got some serious fucking problems, and you know that. Uh, we we really. Uh, I mean. The, 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 <sighs> nah, everything's better now. The only thing that's not better is the continued existence of the nuclear arsenal and the U.S. military. That, If that were not the case, if you eliminated that, then I am very happy with where we are historically, right? We still have this thing that can, tilt, can kill every human being on Earth over, you know, 10 times over in five minutes. That's controlled by one man who's elected by a bunch of ignoramuses. You know, I find that to be extremely dangerous and I would like, that scares the shit out of me and I would like to eliminate that. Other than that, though... Dude, with the with the internet and all that's come with it, my God, right? The digital revolution, that is... Yeah, but this is all us. Profound... Like, I agree with you. Oh, yeah, I know. But this is all us. I'm still... There's still a state and it's still a problem and it might be a more pervasive problem than ever before. But the freedoms we have now because of that, largely... Sure, sure. I... Unprecedented. Yeah. And power. Power. Let me talk about power too. It's not just freedom. Yeah. We now have power. You can go. You can be anybody, and this happens every day. You can be nobody, and you can go get a YouTube channel and become mm-hmm. a superstar and have thousands or millions of followers. And you talk about politics. There are people on YouTube and who have podcasts, especially YouTube, who were like working in a gas station yesterday, and now they have a million followers, and they're talking about politics. You tell me that sure. that's not a massive sea change in the way that we live, and a massive sea change 100%. in the amount of power that the masses, the ordinary subaltern people have. It's incredible. Be happy. Be happy. Cheer up. Ordinary subaltern. Okay, fine. Fine. Okay. (laughs) All right. Fine. All right. You're going to use Gramscian terminology with me. Fine. Uh (laughs) Whatever. Uh, All right. You good now? Uh, (laughs) They do it? Uh, I mean, I'm not good, but I believe you. <laughs> I like, I believe what you're saying. That's Your libertarian audience will be like, what the hell are you talking about? NSA, blah, 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 surveillance, yada, yada. True, all true, but compared to the massive, again, revolution in everyday life. And also lots of technologies to st- overstep those things. If we're talking technologies, there are lots of technologies to overstep any kind of surveillance. Yeah, like right. If you're in the know. Get a VPN. Right, Tor, all the rest of it, sure. dark web, Telegram, you name Telegram, yeah, right. Shit, if the terrorists can use it, so can you. And crypto, <laughs> crypto is the best. Crypto is the yes. future, my friend. That is yes. it. I mean, that I agree. But it's all the future. All of this is going to add up, and everybody's got a podcast, and everybody's got a YouTube channel, and everybody's got yes. crypto, and everybody yep. can travel across state lines because flights are cheap because of deregulation. I mean, mm. come on, you don't want to trade now with any other time. Yes. I agree. Okay. I agree. Cool. All right. So, uh, <laughs> great. Today's a great day, no matter what. There you they go. Say on the outside. There you and go. Actually, that's the pr- that's the praxis of the entire theory that we've constructed in this conversation. Exactly. Actually. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Good. <laughs> there's some really evil shit out there. <laughs> Every plug, last statement you want to make, everything, Dad. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so I have the Unregistered Podcast, and you should definitely check it out. It's a weekly show. I interview lots of different guests of all political persuasions, and we always get along, and I always probe them, and we get into personal issues, and it's a, it's a long form. Fantastic. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. It's the thing I'm proudest of. And then also, I'm building Renegade University, which is really exciting, and I think that is really going to be the future for me and a lot of people. It already is, because we have... Um, many courses online. We have live live stream courses. We have recorded video courses on all kinds of topics. Basically, what is not taught in the un- the regular universities is what we do. So whatever's kind of on the margins, whether it's left wing or right wing or just countercultural, we teach it. And we're going to develop a school of agorism, by the way, where we're going to teach <laughs> people how to break yes. the law and get away with it. So um, we have we have hundreds of members and it's going and we're building all the time and it's really exciting. So everyone should go to renegadeuniversity.com and we have a trial membership. You only have to give us $1 and you can look at, check it out, take a look at it, or you can join and we have a, a weekly, we have weekly meetings, Zoom meetings where you get to talk to me face-to-face on Zoom and a special guest 
intellectuals, academics, journalists, countercultural people, drug dealers, prostitutes, whoever it is. Uh, it's called Are You Live? And that's you get that as part of your membership. And it's it's the highlight of my week. It's just super fun. And it's a Zoom meeting. You can come on. You can talk to us directly. So that's what I'm up to. So everybody should check those those things out. And then my book, as I mentioned before, is A Renegade History of the United States, where you'll see the argument that I laid out for you. So that's me. Nice. Perfect. Well, Thad, thank Good. you so much for coming on. Cool. Squad.